from Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. I'm Hardy White. Join me now, won't you, as we take a journey together to our memories, which are strangely wrong and scrambled. Yes, it's our altered memories. That's the best kind. They've been upgraded. Mary Tyler Moore stood on her balcony, but she imagined that it was not a balcony, but that part of a ship that has the steering wheel on it, and that the railing of her balcony was the railing of that part of the ship that had the steering wheel on it, and that she stood before the helm, gazing out at the open ocean as she sailed into oblivion, not knowing where she was going or what her fate would be. Mary Tyler Moore was born the second son in a wealthy Japanese family. Her older brother had followed her father into the business of sake hotels. But she had chosen to move to Minneapolis and become a television producer. Her boss's name was Mr. Grant, and he was a tyrant. He would have her work night and day, and she had no time to work on her novel, which was the love of her life. But now she stood upon her balcony, imagining a life at sea, something very different than she had now. Someday I'll make enough money at this television producer job, she thought, that I can commission my own ship to be made. Perhaps not even out of wood. I will make it out of something exotic, plastic or bacolite or something like that. She looked around her living room. Or papier-mâché, she said, as she eyed a papier-mâché sculpture that she had made in grade school and that she carried with her. It was the shape of a gourd. As a child in Japan, she had collected gourds of different shapes and was fascinated by the ones that looked like people. Look, that one with the long nose. It looks like the gourd that was on Gilligan's Island when all the Gilligan's Islanders had to replace their heads with gourds because they were making models of themselves, decoys to be used against a Japanese soldier who did not know that it was the end of the war. And then, as they recounted their stories, each one told a different story. In the television business, this is known as the Gilligan Rashomon episode, and it's a real thing. Mary Tyler Moore thought of these other remarkable facts about television that she had learned from working at a television studio. I'm in the right place for now, she thought. But really, my novel is my life. And I haven't even started it. And I haven't even thought about it. And I haven't even really written anything. And I haven't even taken writing lessons. And I don't even know what writing is, really. And I don't even know what a novel is. And I haven't read one. And I don't know anyone who has read one. And maybe I should change my dreams, but my dreams are what they are. She put on her jumpsuit and quaffed her hair, which took three and a half hours, and then left for work. Today, I will stand up to Mr. Grant, she thought. And why is he called Mr. Grant? You know, there's a place called Grant's Tomb, and in there lies Ulysses S. Grant 
the great American general. But that's not the grant we're talking about. There's other grants, the type that scientists and artists must apply for to get money for their dreams. You know, if others have dreams, they don't even get to apply for a grant for it. Like, I have a dream, she thought, and it isn't really writing a novel. It's also redoing my floors in the apartment. I would love to do that. And I know it's not art, and I could probably get a loan to do it, but I just want a gift. I want someone to give me the money to refinish those floors. I don't even like the job. Why should I have to pay money for something that I don't even like doing? She pulled into her parking space at WJMY television station in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was cold that day, 30 below zero, and she stepped out in her thin jumpsuit and began to freeze and shiver. I shall not give in to the shiver, she thought. It's okay to be exposed to cold for a while. I read that in the future. In the future, there's people that go around saying, take an ice bath, it's good for you. And it just made them grumpier and more aggressive. Keep icing yourself, no warm baths. It's the opposite of what she learned as a child in Japan. She remembered that their maid would draw a deep warm bath for them and they would take a bath before bed or before doing anything, before watching a cartoon. I would like to go have a snack. Take a bath first, said maid, and she would draw a beautiful hot bath for them, and they would soak in there. Mary Tyler Moore, as a young child, would read while she was in the bath, and stories of great rabbis immersing themselves in a mikvah. This is like a sort of mikvah, she thought. Will I arise out of it, a Japanese Jew? No, I shall remain who I am, Mary Tyler Moore. When she stepped into the office that day, she noticed something a little strange. Murray wasn't at his desk. Murray was her co-worker, who always sat to her left. There was no partitions in those days. You see, they had an open office plan, except for John Amos, who was crammed into a corner drawing things with magic markers. But the rest of the staff, the associate producer, the producer, the assistant producer, the writers, the assistant writers, the people who made things, the prop master, they all had desks in this great area, this great room. And Mary Tyler Moore's desk butted up against Murray. So she talked to Murray every day. And he would, in between hunting and pecking on his old mid-century royal typewriter, turn to her and quip and say things like, Ted is a moron. And she would say, come on, Murray. And he'd say, no, he's a moron. I forget what the old antiquated listings of idiocy are, but they're really quantified. Back in the day, you had to be a certain thing. You had to tick some certain boxes to be an idiot or to be a moron. And today, we just hurl those invectives without any real grounding in science. And what I'm saying, said Murray, is that I believe that, strictly speaking, Ted is a moron. All right. All right, said Mary. I know what you want me to do. You want me to kill him. No, I don't want you to kill him, said Murray. Why did you get that idea? I don't know, said Mary. You know, once my father had a business rival, and that rival was going to start sake hotels just like my father. 
and my father realized that he could not compete with this other entrepreneur because that person had simply more resources. They were from a better family. They had more money. And so my father did the unspeakable. He called Big Toe. Big Toe was a fellow in the community that was willing to do anything, anything for a small amount of money and a big amount of booze. And he said, Big Toe, I want you to go to my rival who is trying to outdo me in the Saka Hotel business. And I want you to murder them in cold blood. And Big Toe said, well, it's summer. And he said, yes. He said, well, I don't know how cold it's going to be. The blood is going to be warm. And even when it escapes the body, it could still remain warm. Now, if you want me to do it in cold weather, I'll wait you know, or shove him into some sort of refrigerated area? No, said the father. I mean, I want you to do it without any uh, regret. Oh, I can totally do that, said Big Toe. I have no morals. I have no conscience. Yes, that's what I meant by cold-blooded. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. The other thing I was going to say, if you didn't say that, was that he is not a reptile because I know that they describe reptiles that way. I, Big Toe, have been described as a reptile because of my viper-like lack of conscience. And I don't know that vipers have a conscience or not. I'm told they're just defending themselves. I, however, am not. I'm going after the big buck. I'm chasing power. See, I am deficient in so many ways, and so I'm willing to rage, and I'm willing to destroy. Enough, 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 said Father. I don't really care. <laughs> I just want you to do this. So that haunted Mary. And she thought for a long time that was the way you do things. So when she went to WJM and she worked as an associate producer and she worked her way up, she thought, maybe I need to murder the people that are in front of me on the ladder. And she did that for any ladder. Even if you were climbing up a ladder, she would say, I wonder if I'm supposed to take down the person in front of me. No, you needn't do that. She never did. She never killed any of her coworkers, though she came very, very close a couple times. Um... Mara sat there, uh, struck silent, though, by her strange confession, and he changed the subject. Listen, Mayor, I have an idea for a segment. A segment of what? said Mary. A new segment. Oh, 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 oh. For some reason, I was thinking about worms, and I know that they're segmented. And when you said segment, I thought you meant a worm. Why would you think that when we work in news and we use that word segment every day? I'm sorry. My mind drifted. It's like when you're dreaming and you ha have a s totally different context, a totally different worldview suddenly. You're not in your element. You're in a different one. And I was daydreaming that we were in some sort of underground hotel and we were being attacked by, I don't know who, some kind of strange army. Maybe they had taken over. And I was there, and you were there, and Mr. Grant was there, but he was made of clay, and he was like one of those old sculptures of a soldier, and he was rigid, and things were coming at him, and they were bouncing off of him. And I thought, is he temporarily clay? Can he transform himself between flesh and clay? Or is he stuck just this one way? And then you said to me something about you should murder Ted, and I woke up. No, 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 said Murra. That's not what I meant. This went on for uh, a little while until Rhoda showed up. Rhoda was Mary's best friend and neighbor, and she also came from Japan, from Hokkaido, from the far north, 
and she was also part Ainu, which was very interesting. And so she had a fascination with bears. And she brought with her that day a small bear cub. Mary, she said, I just adopted a bear. What, said Mary? Yes, I'm naming him Berenstein. Berenstein? Yes, because I'm Rhoda Morgenstern. Morgenstern? Yes, it means morning star. Morning star? Bears? What's going on, Rhoda? Well, my parents are in town, and they are going to be staying with you. With me? Why me? They're your parents. Well, because we thought that would be funnier. And you see, everything I do is operated by my puppet master, this dark lord that controls me, James L. Brooks. And he has taken control of my soul using some sort of sorcery said Rhoda. No, there's nothing I can do. Is that why you're wearing that headscarf? Yes, yes, yes. I thought you were orthodox. No, I'm not. Well, that's what I thought the headscarf was going. No, we've even gone, we've gone out together and had shrimp. Oh, I, I thought you were just, you know, I thought you were just cheating. So I thought that, you know, so what? I never said anything. That's funny, said Rhoda, because I thought your hair was a wig. And I was like, oh, good peruke. But it's not. It's, it's your real hair. Yes, and they both laughed uproariously. Just then, there was an explosion. Not a real explosion, but a human explosion of anger. What is this? It was Mr. Grant. He had his own office. Everybody else had to have a desk together, including the president of the network. But Mr. Grant had his own office because he was a physical and psychological danger to others. And so he was kept in this sort of cage. And while all the others could roam free, not Mr. Grant. He was like some angry bull that they had in a special stable. He was like some Tasmanian devil that couldn't be let out because he would cause such mayhem and such damage. He was like some rabid kangaroo that was extra buff and that was just going to pummel everybody in its sight and take its rear legs and use them to eviscerate people willy-nilly, willy-nilly, randomly, without any kind of rhyme or reason. That's Mr. Grant. He used to be in the newspaper business. That's why he became like that. And so many of them drank. They would keep in their desk drawer a flask and they would pull it out and they would hit that flask and they would smoke cigarettes and they would type furiously and they'd say, we got to get this to press, got to get this to press. And they, sometimes they would put on matching hats and all sing together. Oh, it was a glorious time. But now it was the age of television. We all remember that song to television killed the newspaper star. Television killed the newspaper star. Internet will destroy them all. Television killed the newspaper star. Star, Stern, Morgan Stern. It was starting to come together in Mr. Grant's head. This is a conspiracy. They're out to get me, he thought. And that's why he screamed, Oh, get me Mary Tyler Moore, he said. So Mary entered his office. Oh, Mr. Grant, she began to chant. She began to chant the ancient chant that she knew would contain the demon that was within Mr. Grant because that's what was going on. 
When he was a very young man, Mr. Grant had made an enemy of a witch. He was playing ball one day, and he had accidentally thrown the ball too hard, and it hit an old crone, and the old crone had spilled her grease bucket. I've spilled my grease bucket! And she was angry, and so she saw as Mr. Grant came after his ball, so she put a curse on him. You shall have within you a dark beast in your breast. I beg your pardon, he said. You shall have a demon in you, and it shall make you unpleasant. And at 42, you will look like you're 65 or something. It's un unbelievable. And then everyone around you will look 15 years older than they are. Oh, it's true. And the curse followed him into adulthood, and it followed him into his profession of producer of a TV news television show called Judge Bayard, Minnesota, Minneapolis. Mr. Grant, are you there? Yes, the demon had gone because of Mary's chanting. She did it again just to make sure it was gone. No, I'm back, said Mr. Grant. I'm sorry about the outburst. It's quite all right. It's quite all right. I understand. But listen, Murray has an idea for a segment. Worms, said Mr. Grant. No, no, no. It's a news segment. What is it? I don't know. He hasn't told me. Why don't we ask him together? So Mr. Grant and Mary approached Murrah's desk and said, Murrah, what is this segment that you had in mind? He said, listen to this. Worms. Well, wait, you said it wasn't worms. No, I said that I didn't mean that by segment, but the segment is, in fact, about worms. It's about how worms can make different things for you. People farm them, and they put them in soil, and they'll make the excrement from the worms can be fertilizer. And also the worms make other things. They knit vests. But the vests, of course, are armless because worms are armless. So they're not what we would call vests. And what they make for us is very nice straw cozies. So they slip over to a, a traditional-shaped straw. and But they're little sweaters. And they're about, they range from two to maybe five inches. These little sweaters, these straw cozies. And the worms make those. And also, I mean, uh, this is pretty, pretty gross, but you can eat them. What you do is you take the, they take the worms, and I know this sounds unappetizing, but they're really high in protein. And they, they press them into the shape of a steak. And then, or anything you want, really, any protein shape. And then it's just compacted worms and they have little personalities. You can have them as pets or anything. And we have ones that'll go in your ear that'll keep you company. And they're not, say, earworms, said Mr. Grant. No, no, no. I know that's an expression, but these are literally just worms designed for the ear. And they are virtually invisible. They keep you company. They'll talk to you. They don't, it isn't like the Douglas Adams thing where they don't translate other languages, we have your phone does that. But the, the worm inside the ear will talk to you, whisper to, to you and be, you're all right, you're okay. It's, a, 
It's all right. That's a little worm in you. It's going to be It's going to be okay. And and sometimes you'll look distracted at people and they'll say, do you have what's in your ear? And I go, I think you know. Now, the worms have gone rogue sometimes and say crazy things into your ear. We're trying to get them to say, you know, the news so that we can just stick one in uh, the newscaster's ear and then, um, like Ted, and then he would just, and he'd say whatever the worm is telling him to say. I don't know. That sounds risky, said Mr. Grant. I don't know, said Mary Tyler Moore. This sounds like something I've been warned against. There was a myth when I was growing up, and it was about a yokai or monster that resided in the woods. And it, at first glance, you would think it was a Buddhist monk. So you'd be walking in the woods, and you'd see this, this monk, and you'd, you'd, you'd greet him. But if you made that mistake and greeted him, he would turn into a worm. And he would start speaking to you, and he would start sort of hypnotizing you until you were his servant. And then he could tell you to do whatever he wanted. And a lot of people would go to work for the, the worm monk in the woods. And we grew up hearing this over and over again, so we never went in the woods. It turns out the woods are just a connection to another town, which has lots of stuff we needed, but we never got there because of the fear of this monster. And so when you're talking to me about now about worms and all that kind of thing, I'm thinking to myself, is this real or is this a setup to not go into the next town? I got an idea, said Mr. Grant. Maybe we can use this to bypass the competition. What are you thinking, said Mary Tallimore. Well, listen to me. There's this other station now, WM and W. What are you saying? Well, that's just the thing. They've come up with this new way of saying the calling letters. Well, you can't really understand what they're saying. We just can't compete with that. We're doing things the old-fashioned way, saying our name and everything. Well... What are we going to do? I'm thinking this. We get this worm segment, segment, and then we train one of the worms to be one of your old-fashioned monk yokai worms that takes control of people. We cross that with one of the ear type, and bam, we have a control demon monster that we could put into the competition's ear or the, their anchor man's ear or something, and have complete control of them. I see where you're going, said Murrah. And then we would cause them to do something that would destroy the station. Yes, like saying something slightly wrong on the news, said Mr. Grant. For instance, let's say there was a big party at a museum, and it was the Museum of Natural History, but really it was the Natural History Museum. Something like that would be an unbelievable scandal. If you said that on the air, in the form of news, and it turned out not to be right, oh, the consequences would be overwhelming. You'd lose your broadcast license. You might lose your freedom. Well, we don't quite want it to go that far, said Mary Tyler Moore. How can we get them to just do something slightly wrong so that they just go off the air, but nobody goes to jail? Hmm. How will we do that? I think I have an idea said Ted Knight. What? Ted, where did you come from? Ted Knight was the anchor man for WJM. 
He was wearing a leisure suit of one color and a shirt of a totally different color, but it seemed to go together. They were also different patterns, but it doesn't matter because those patterns resonated in a certain way. They worked together, just like the fact that Ted was awful and not awful at the same time. It was a contradiction, and he was a walking contradiction, and he was also their secret weapon. Because something like Ted can't be predicted. It's unpredictable. You see, I, is it going to be good? Is it going to be mad? bad? We don't know. It's just Ted. So Ted Knight walked out, and he said, I've got an idea. A golem. A golem, said Murrah. A golem, said Mary Tyler Moore. A golem, said Mr. Grant. A golem, said Ted Knight. What we'll do is we will make a newscaster out of clay. Clay. Where have I heard about a person made of clay, said Mary Tyler Moore. And then she thought about her dream, and she thought about her dream about Mr. Grant, how they were all in the basement of a hotel during some kind of war, some kind of conflict. Was that conflict with the other station? Was that a premonition? The clay, Mr. Grant, was that the clay golem that they would make? I think this is destined to be, said Mary Tyler Moore. What do we need to make a golem? Well, said Ted, we need some clay. Well, maybe we can get the clay from Betty White. And when Betty White heard her name, she walked in. I'm Betty White, she said, and she started to insult everybody. Mary, you're not married, because you're a loser. And also, Murrah's bald. Mr. Grant, you're somehow sexy to me, though clearly the wrong size or shape or all things are wrong with you, and Ted, you're a moron. Betty White, we need your help. Do you have any clay? Well, I do have some clay. Do you need it to be self-hardening? Unlike some people who work here, no. We need it to be the kind that you bake. Bake? Like get high? No, no, no. What are you talking about? Everybody is very confused about normal words here. We need some clay, the kind that you make pots out of on one of those wheels where possibly you're making it. Maybe there's a ghost guiding your hands. It's not clear, but then you make it. It spins around. You put all water on it. It looks like chocolate. And then... You make a bowl, and then you take the bowl, and you put it in a kiln, which is a sort of oven that gets impossibly hot, and then the bowl either explodes, or if it doesn't explode, it turns into a really nice piece of pottery, which then you can then go back in time and glaze because you forgot to do it. But Or you can glaze it afterwards. I think that's done, too. But then you got to bake it again. Is that right? It's obvious I don't make ceramics. Do you have that clay? Yes, said Betty White. Also, Sculpey. Sculp, could you make a golem out of Sculpey? Let's go with the traditional clay right now and see how that goes. And then we can, we can, um, we can either explore plasticine or something like that. But right now, let's go with the traditional earthen clay and we will make an anchor man. Well, work began. They decided to go into the basement of WJM TV television in then Sabalist, Minnesota. And they began work making a sculpture out of clay of an anchor man. We will do this. We will model it on different parts of ourselves. It needs something about Ted. 
My hair, said Ted. My hair is perfect. Give it the hair of Ted. What about the face? Well, it's got to have a pretty face, but it's got to be different than Ted's face. My face is pretty, said Betty White. All right, we'll give it the face of Betty White. What about a body? Well, let's go with Murrah. Mr. Grant got very angry, but he didn't say anything. He just kind of huffed. They went with Murray's body. But Mr. Grant, your feet uh, are going to be in there, too, because you don't have feet of clay. And we'd like to honor you by making feet of clay in honor of your lacking feet of clay. And so much of what we're talking about, said Mary Tyler Moore, is really based on the book of Daniel. I know it doesn't seem like it is, but a lot of it really is. A lot of times you have to give something up, give up power in order to gain it. How are we doing that, said Murrah? That comes later in our story. First, we have to do this thing, which is going to be an utter disaster and is going to backfire on us. What do you mean? Well, somehow one of those worms gets in our golem's ear and everything goes wrong and he gets, he ruins our station and he runs amok and then he kills, not Chuckles the clown, but Chuckles' son, Chuckle Jr., who replaced Chuckles, and that's awful. Chuckle Jr. was older than Chuckles the clown, though, because he had adopted him. He adopted someone that was older than he as his son, and I don't know why that is. Sometimes people do that symbolically, so I'd like to be able to leave you money. But anyway, Chuckles Jr. Uh, got destroyed by this golem in the future. Well, this sounds like a future we can avoid, said Murray. Why are we even making it if it's going to be a disaster? Some things are unavoidable, said Mr. Grant. Look, I didn't throw that ball at that old witch, that old crone with the grease bucket. I threw it at my friend who then didn't catch it. That wasn't my problem. And when he didn't catch it, it kept going and hit this lady. And she cursed me forever. And that's why I have the demon inside me. Yes, said the others. Where are you going with this? I didn't do that. I'm not responsible for it. Sometimes the stuff just has to play out. You know, things have consequences. It doesn't mean that that's connected to justice in any way. I don't think I did anything wrong. That doesn't mean that there weren't consequences for what I did. You see, let me tell you the story another way. Let's say that wasn't an old lady. It was a bear. And then my ball had hit a bear, and the bear came and then got very mad at me and, and beat me up. Now you'd say, well, the bear didn't know that you did. Exactly. There you go. It had a consequence. But I wasn't the, to blame in any way, morally. I was simply a catalyst. I made something happen. The newsroom crew sat around silently for a while in a circle. They all sort of bowed down and put their hands together and looked at their hands like they were praying, but they weren't praying, they were thinking. Are we making the right decision? Is it inevitable that we have to go through this process of trying to destroy our rival with a clay golem and some sort of mind-controlling vermin? I mean, does this have to be, said Mary? And she imagined herself once again on that poop deck. Not that she kept calling it a poop deck, but really it's the helm. It's that area that looks like a little balcony. 
and it has a little kind of hand railing, usually kind of carved out of wood or something, and then the ship's steering wheel, which Mary was pretty sure had an actual name that she was getting wrong, but she kept saying that because that evoked the right picture in her brain, even though maybe her words for it were different. Doesn't matter when you're dreaming. When you're dreaming, you can make anything you want. And she wanted to make this ship, and she wanted to look out over that ocean. And she wanted to be the chief, and she wanted to be the Mr. Grant. And she didn't care that even if they were going the wrong way, or they were headed over the edge of the earth, it didn't matter, or towards a big whirlpool, like in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, a book that Mary had read as a youth in Japan by Poe, Poe's Pym, and she thought of that. I'd rather be captain of my own ship that wrecks than be a passenger on a ship that's no fun or the people are mean. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stall-fed ox and hatred therewith. What, Mr. Grant? You heard me. It's from the Bible. I believe that our strategy should be not to destroy the competition, but maybe invite the competition to join us. Television doesn't work that way, said Murrah. Television does not work that way, Mr. Grant, said Mary Tyler Moore. How does it work then? Because let me tell you, I've seen things like this happen. I've seen people come to, well, not come together, more like split up, like Maud, like didn't I, like Maud and the Jeffersons. I mean, all of that is all in the family. They just sort of went their own way. It's an expanded universe. They used to call it a spinoff, but it's an expanded universe. You know who lives near Archie Bunker? Maud. You know who else lives near there? Jeffersons. You know who else lives, what is near there? The um, Meathead's uh, head shop? That one didn't get, I wrote the script for that, said Murrah. I wrote a spec script for something called Meathead's Head Shop. And it was going to be a spinoff. And uh, Michael Skiznick or whatever from On the Family, Meathead, was going to be a entrepreneur. And he was going to open a head shop in Queens called Meathead's. And I wrote the script, and it really, I thought it was funny, and it was really good. And they said Rob Reiner saw it and was amused, but they just didn't think it was right for network television. And then, uh, beat, 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 I wait a few years, and then Spinal Tap. <laughs> so I felt ripped off, said Murrah. I felt like they took my idea. I've seen that movie. It doesn't have anything to do with that, Murrah. It doesn't? No, it's not in there. I'm relieved, said Murray. I've never seen it. I couldn't bring myself to see it because I just assumed they stole my idea. No, 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 no. Rob Reiner made a totally different movie. Had nothing to do with your spec script that didn't get made. Murray began to cry. Why are you crying, Murray, said Mr. Grant. Well, I just feel a sense of relief. You know, I thought an injustice had been done to me. No, I thought that I'd been hurt. Now I've got to deal with that. i got to deal with the fact that I never was hurt. There was no injury. I imagined it. I spent all those years healing. I tried to heal from the pain. 
I developed scar tissue over a wound that wasn't real. I'd been wounded by myself, not by others. I'd imagined these things. I'd imagined myself into spaces that were destructive. Mary spit. What are you... Mary, I'm sorry. I thought I was on my boat. I thought I was on my ship, and I thought I was spitting over the side. I thought I was spitting into the ocean, which is a wonderful symbolic gesture, right? It makes you realize just about proportions, about scale, about things relative to other things, size-wise. Yeah, relative size, said Mr. Grant. So when I spit into the ocean, I was spitting into something that was vast. I was putting my small contribution into something that was... Almost infinite. What do you mean almost infinite? Well, it's practically infinite, meaning for all practical purposes, the ocean is infinite for where I, where I am at. I can't row it or swim it or anything. If I was to fall over, it's just water in all directions forever. It's not really that, but it's really that because of my size. It might as well be that. And I put myself there Mentally, said Mary, I have taken myself out on an unmoored ship, an uncrewed ship all by myself. I have made myself the ancient mariner, afloat, adrift on a ghost ship, thinking that I was fantasizing about being in control, but I wasn't. I was fantasizing about being out of control. And the world I made for myself was scary, with a million creepy crawly things below the surface, living on like me, in the wake of my horrible heart, all the things that I imagined I was going to kill my enemies. Maybe I did it in some other dimension, in some kind of imaginary world, in my dreams, Mara. Maybe I killed my enemies. No, Mary, you didn't really do it. Let go of that guilt. You felt vulnerable. You were scared. You were scared, said Ted. That's why you did it. Did what, Ted? Oh, I don't know. I'm not listening. I knew you weren't said Mr. Grant. Mary fell silent. I think we need to just get back to work. What do you mean, Mayor? said Murrah. Let's all just go to our desks and for a few minutes just be quiet and not really think about anything. Not think about the past, these things that we have done that let me ashamed of, dreams that were unfulfilled, guilt we have, things that we think didn't get completed. Let's put that aside. Let's put aside our fear of the future, that this other TV station is going to drive us under, that it's going to have better numbers than we have, that we're going to end up doing fake news by mistake and they're going to be promoted and we're going to fade away. Let's not think about that. Let's not think about the future for a minute. Let's just sit in this office at our desks and think about right now about doing a new news segment. On what? Let's do it on 
dreams. Dreams, said Ted. What's new about dreams? Is there dream news? All dreams are dream news. There's always news in dreams. It's always different than we think. Oh, all our desires and fears rolled up like a ball of confused, sensory-deprived, pure thought bouncing around in there, chaotic. Why can't we tell people about that? So you're saying that my newscast, said Ted, should be a recounting of our dreams. Yeah, said Mary. Every day we'll all come in the office and we'll all type up, instead of telling them around the water cooler, we'll all type up our dreams, what happened in them, and then you read that on the air instead of news. Wait a minute, said Mr. Grant. This is something that's never been done. That's crazy. It won't inform anybody. How will they know what's going on? It's just as informative and it's just as pertinent to people's lives as some other things that we report. Like, who cares that they're opening a new restaurant or something in town? Who cares that there's a, there's a war? Well, I mean, some things are important. But there's a lot that we do that isn't important. So why wouldn't dream news be an adequate replacement for the banal and meaningless, all this filler that we have in there all the time. All these fluff stories, let them be really strange. Let them be actual news in that what's being conveyed is new. I think you've convinced me, said Mr. Grant. I might have the perfect dream, said Murrah. Last night I had one. I might have to edit some things to make it family-friendly. All right, we'll do it. All right. Nope, I can't. It will never be family-friendly. We'll pick another dream. I will. Do daydreams count? Daydreams might count. All right, said Murray. I'll get going on one right now. Or I'll nap. Maybe we should all nap. And they agreed. And so they passed around some sake until they were all very drunk and passed out. And they all lay their heads on their desks. And these are the dreams that they had. Murray. Murray's dream. Murray is in a bar. He is sitting alone at a bar. There's nobody there. There's just him. In front of him is a cup of coffee. Not a drink, but a cup of coffee. And across the bar is not a bartender, but a mirror. Just like there are in real bars, and Murray looks up and sees himself, but the face he sees is not himself. It's his father's face. It's his father drinking coffee in a bar, and he remembers that his father was often not home, and he'd wonder where he was. Am I my father? Murray thought, and he took a sip of the coffee, but it wasn't coffee. It was chocolate milk. Chocolate milk, just like he used to drink when he was a kid. And when he looked up again, the mirror was a television, and it was playing Popeye. Popeye cartoons, which they used to show to kids before they had made a bunch of crummy cartoons just for television. Old Popeyes, the theater Popeyes. And there was a host that would come on, and it was a lady, and she was dressed as a cowboy. And she would say, hey, kiddos, are you out there? Are you ready for some more Popeye cartoons? Yes, said Murray, and he took a sip of his chocolate milk, and when he put it down again, it was back to being a bar mirror. And there was a bartender in front of him who said, Buddy, you okay? I think I'm okay, said Murray. I think I'm okay. Mary's dream. 
Mary is sitting upon a tatami mat in Japan. She's not sure what age she is, but she walk, watches a black cat walk by. I am a cat, says the cat. Oh, you are, says Mary Tyler Moore. Yes, and I am living here with you because it amuses me. But I feed you. I feed you fish sometimes even. I know. I deserve it. And when I don't get fish, said the cat, I'll eat an occasional bird. It's you that's been eating the songbirds, said Mary. Yeah, what of it, says the cat. I don't need songbirds. Yes, but I do. They bring me joy. I love to hear them sing in the morning. I can sing for you, said the cat, and it began to wail that kind of cat sound that sounds like everything bad is happening to this poor animal at once, even though it might be happy. Who knows? But it's... And the cat made this horrible sound, and Mary said, You get out of here. I don't choose to get out of here, said the cat. In fact, I'm going to sleep right now upon the edge of your kimono. And the cat curled up on her kimono, and it didn't move for a long time, and Mary was afraid to move because she didn't want to anger the cat, but she also had compassion for it and wanted to let it sleep. I will let the talking cat sleep, because deep down, I too am a cat. Mr. Grant's Dream Mr. Grant sat on a stool in a field. He got the feeling that he had been milking a cow, but the cow was not gone, because it was one of those three-legged stools, and he sat there in a large, open, grassy field, and at the edge there seemed to be a tree stand, but he wasn't moving towards it, he was just sitting there. He felt as if he was waiting for the cow to return. Perhaps the cow has gone off into the woods. Maybe it met some kind of old monk that was really a yokai. He sat there, and he sat there, and he suddenly looked down at his stool, and he realized that the three legs of the stool were three of his relatives, his mother, his father, and his older brother. And he sat on them, and they said, Oh, you're crushing us with your weight. You must lose weight, Mr. Grant. What? Why are my family under this stool? You are resting upon your family, but you have not thought of their comfort or safety. You are using them as a piece of furniture to achieve your goals. And look up, your goals have even escaped you. Where's your cow? I was milking a cow. Where's my cow? And where's your bucket? said his brother, another leg of the stool. I don't know. I've lost both. Where's my cow? I'm supposed to be milking it, but I'm not. I'm just resting on my family. Ted Knight's Dream Ted is sitting at his broadcast center where he usually does the news. He is an anchor man. In his dream, he is an anchor man. In reality, he sits there and reads the news off a teleprompter. In his dream, he sits there and reads the news off his teleprompter. In reality, he has confidence. In his dream, he has no confidence. And he suddenly realizes that he's no good at his job and that people don't like him. And he's reading the news and everything is going fine and it's a normal night just like all nights where he's broadcasting and he feels competent and he's saying things in a sonorous voice and he's reading other people's texts and he's hardly thinking about it. But suddenly he's overcome with a feeling of incompetence, a feeling of being a fraud and also the feeling of not being liked. Nobody likes me, Ted says to himself. 
but it doesn't affect his work, and he just keeps on going, and the dream is indistinguishable from real life to him, except that his inner life is different. It's all wrong. It's absolutely fearful. It is unsure. It is uh, impermanent. Suddenly, he is a stranger to himself. Betty White's dream. Betty White does not dream. Betty White transcends all dreaming and floats above the scenario. She floats away into her private world. I am both a character and the actress who plays myself. I shall float off with the love of my life, Alan Ludden, and we shall go somewhere distant, far away from this memory that's only another entry in my IMDb. My soul is bigger than this. I am no mere character dreaming some silly thing on a sitcom. I am Betty White, and I encompass the entire universe in my experience. When they all woke up, they were silent. They looked at one another. Should we transcribe these things? They all thought silently, but nobody said it. They turned towards their desks. Mr. Grant went back in his office. Betty White went through the double doors into nothingness because there was nothing on the other side of that. Ted went through the back door. They all returned to their work in silence. Rhoda Morgenstern sat at her desk in her small apartment. Her desk was bright pink, and she wrote with an orange pen. Around her, everything was psychedelic. All the colors, all strange, all flowers and motifs of the time. I wonder... What Mary's doing, said Rhoda. I worry about her. I worry about her dreams. I worry when she stands out on her balcony there, I can see her. What is she thinking? Does she, does she want to jump? Does she want to fly, not knowing that she'll fall? Is she simply looking out into the distance, trying to forget? Has she gone somewhere mentally and her body is still there? That's what I see. And Rhoda began to write. I am Rhoda Morgenstern. I am the morning star. I observe my friends and those I love at night when they dream. And in the daytime they see just the end of me, the tiny little flicker the remains, and then it becomes too bright. The brightness of the day interferes, and the beautiful silence of the night that allowed us to think in between the cracks of the busyness and the din of waking life has all disappeared. And now we could broadcast this. Hello, this is Ted Knight. I am the newscaster of WJM Minneapolis Soda TV Television News, said Ted, just like that, just like that. And today I am going to read to you a different type of news story. 
It is the story that is contained in this next segment. No, it's not a worm. No, it's not something that's going to eat your brain and make you a zombie. It's about dreams. It's dreaming. I'm going to broadcast now the content of the dreams of the people that are bringing you this news. That's what you really want to hear, isn't it? Not some made-up record of what's going on. Oh, what did they do at City Hall today? Only things that they didn't want you to know about, so they told some lie that we'll broadcast for them to make you feel good. We'll tell you about the opening of some business. We'll tell you about something going on on the other side of the world that we're not even sure about. But not today. Today, we're going to tell you about something that we are sure about. Our dreams, and Ted began to read the contents of the dreams. He read his own dream. He read Murrah's dream. He read Mary Tyler Moore's dream, Mr. Grant's dream. He read them all, and he read them with great drama. Oh, he put all his heart into it, all his effort into it. And they got to the end of the show, and they began to sign off. This is Ted Knight saying, Good night. And good night to you. Good night. They signed off. And they all nervously returned to the office, waiting for the reviews to come in. Because every night after the news, there was a news critic that would write it up and then quickly publish it in a newspaper. And then only a couple of people would see it. But then they would read it and phone the newsroom. So they were sitting there waiting for that phone call to get the review. Well, we did it. Said Mary Tonamore. I did it, said Ted. Well, we all did it, said Mr. Grant, because it was all, we all agreed to do it together. I physically did it, said Ted. Yes, but we, it was all, our, what Mary means to do is we all came up with this idea and we all did our things. We all did different parts. And yes, you did the part where you actually spoke it. Thank you for acknowledging that, said Ted. You're welcome, Mr. Grant said sarcastically. I wonder why the phone's not ringing, said Murrah. Don't know. Nobody cares. It's not worth reviewing. Mary looked perplexed. They began to doubt themselves. And then the phone rang. Murrah picked it up. Hello, he said. Murrah, here. Murrah's last name was Slaughter. And that disturbs a lot of people. And so he didn't use it off, often. But in this case, he did. He said, Murray Slaughter here, because he wanted to be a little bit intimidating. He wanted to let this critic know, or the person who had read the critic's work, rather, that he meant business. Mm-hmm, said Murray. They all listened intently, trying to hear the other end of the receiver. They couldn't. They could only hear Murray's end of the conversation. I see, he said. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? He said, what? They did what? What is it saying, Murray? Wait. Uh-huh. Oh, I see. Is it good or bad news, said Mr. Grant? Just wait a minute, said Murray. Uh-huh. Mmm. Uh-huh. 
What is he saying? He's not saying nothing. It's hold music. Just wait a minute, said Murray. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm still here. Okay. Oh, all right. I'll tell them. Okay, thank you. No, I'm not. It's not for the great. Oh, yes. Exactly. Super hungry. All righty. Bye-bye. What did he say, Murray? He said that he has dreams, too. That's it. That's all the critics said. I have dreams, too. What you just heard was an episode of Mary Tyler Moore by uh, Hardy White. It is a short story that I have uh, written for a new magazine uh, that has this type of thing, and I just wanted to share it for, with you. No, it's not for a magazine. It's just it's just for you. That is my gift to you. I would love it if it was produced as a play somewhere. It'd be what a what a dream come true. And I've got more sort of fan fiction like that for also I've got a murder she wrote and I would just love to do those for you too. And it's such a blessing that we can share this world together. Oh, my friends, I'm so glad that you're with me. And I hope that you are having a wonderful time in your personal newsroom. Because inside of all of us are all these voices. There's a, a producer. This is a new psychology I've been reading about, or actually watching on um, television, is this there's a producer, there's an associate producer, there's a writer, there's a, bro there's a you know, an announcer you. And so there's also, there's a, a, home, a home improvement you or whatever. I, I'm not sure of all the characters. A clown, vulnerable clown. And so I, I wanted to present that to you. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, my beautiful friends. Uh, it's a remarkable world that we live in and that we can share our stories and our dreams with one another and work things out like this, share our vulnerabilities, maybe help us understand human beings and the human experience a little better so that we can navigate it with less tragedy and less cruelty. That's what I'm trying to do is just uh, make myself more aware of the struggles of others so that I help and don't hinder. And uh, why would I want to do that? Because I like comfort and joy. Comfort and joy, and I prefer that over uh, turmoil and suffering and everything like that. Just so it's really very selfish of me. And uh, I don't do it for any other reason than that. I think of a beautiful, peaceful world would be lovely. And I have an idea of how we could possibly go about that. So it begins with not... Uh, not, you know, purposely trying to hurt one another. <laughs> That's easy. I can usually do that fairly easily without interacting. But then when I start to interact with people, you've got to make a conscious, conscious effort sometimes to make things better and not worse. So bless you so much. You knew that. You know that. You don't have to. You're not. That's not why you're listening. Oh, you're listening because you're a wonderful, generous person. And you are listening to uh, Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White on WFMU uh, East Orange, 
MFU Mount Hope 91.9 in Rockland County in New York City, New York, and online, WFMU.org worldwide on the World Wide Web, Freeform Radio, the way you like it, Freeform. And I will see you again next week. Twins name was Ebony. Her name was Mahogany. 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 Twins name was Ebony.